You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Today we are starting a, um, a three-part series on suffering. Peter speaks of suffering proportionately more than any other book of the Bible, 1 Peter. It's a theme that we haven't really looked at as we've gone through this book, but today I'd like to start um, a, a small series on it. So I'm going to read some, some passages from 1 Peter. We'll land in 1 Peter chapter 3 where we're at in our text, but I want to start in 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'm going to read some. If you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Peter 1, 6. And then I'll just tell you where we're going next and you can flip over, okay? So 1 Peter 1, 6. I will read and then um, I will pray and ask God to, um, to really minister to us during this time as we speak about this subject. 1 Peter 1, verse, uh, verse 6. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you, have, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ Jesus is revealed. Chapter 3, verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the unrighteous, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice and as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. This is God's word. Let me pray. God, I, I want to thank you, God, for your, your um, care of our lives, that you are near us, Lord. Even as we were singing in that, that first session of, of, of worship, we... I think just we kind of sense your nearness here. We sense that this is a place, God, where um, as we gather as your people, as First Peter says, as like a holy temple, living stones built on one another, there's like this thin space that happens, Lord, where you are here. And so we pray that you would make yourself known through your word, that you would speak to us, that you would convince us and both convict us, Lord, that you would change us, that we wouldn't just simply be hearers of these words, but doers of these words, God. Do that in our hearts. We need strength in going through suffering, Lord. We, I, I, I can speak for me. I don't know how to suffer well. 
I don't think we have the framework to suffer well in our, in our culture, so would you help us? Would you give us the tools, the resources by your spirit through this word to know what to do with suffering? In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Recently, I was sitting with um, someone in the church. She, was, uh, she works at a, a PR firm here locally, and she's working on stuff for the city. And so we're, we were sitting down, we're chatting, and she asked me, um, could you describe San Francisco in one word? If you were to describe in one word the city of San Francisco, what would that one word be? And it was a great challenge, and I thought about it for a while. Had many words that came to my head, many sentences. Um, but I landed on this word. I said, if there was one word, it would be Epicurean. Like the, 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 the love, the pleasure of everything. Like experiences and food and life. Like it's, this city is like an Epicurean city. And that's probably why I like this city so much. Recently, our staff did this thing called the Enneagram. It's like a personality test that weighs virtue and vices. And it finds like what number you are like. Um, and this number has like a virtue piece and a vice piece. And we all took them. And I was a, I was a seven. And a seven is an Epicurean. A seven is like love's life, the, the vice for a seven. And I was reading these lists, and I'm like, how do you know me? Like, how do you know me? Like, this is what makes you depressed. This is what gets you excited. This is what you think about in the future. This is the, how you process things. I'm reading this going, no way. And like, your vice is gluttony. I'm like, oh, how did you know? <laughs> like, your vice is like, you want all of life, all of it. Like, you want to experience it. You want to lap it up. And so I, I, I say this to confess to you that I don't know how to suffer well either. Like, we live in a city of Epicureans. I am an, like, that's like my, my thing. It's my thing. I'm like, I'm not trying to, I'm trying to learn how to be a, a redeemed seven. That's what I'm trying to learn right now. <laughs> that's a form of suffering, but I don't have time to get into that. I mean, and so I, as I'm talking about suffering, I'm not this like this guy who loves to confront everything and loves to like talk about really tough things and, and, and that just tries to bring confrontation on all sides and loves to bring the hard stuff. I too need to learn how to suffer. I love pleasure. I love enjoyment. I love comfort. This weekend, uh, my wife and I were um, in San Luis Obispo for a wedding. And when we got into, oh, all right, San Luis in the house. <laughs> When we got into uh, San Luis on Friday, uh, we had some time to kill. My wife's like, I, I, gotta, I have to get my nails done for the wedding. And I'm like, okay, I'll just drop you off. She goes, you want to come with me? And I'm like, uh, no. I'm like, <laughs> what? She's like, come with me. You can get a, you get a pedicure. I'm like, a, a what? She goes, believe me, you're going you're gonna to love it. And I'm like, no, there's no way in the world I'm going with you to get a pedicure. We're not going to go do our nails together. She's like, trust me. Tr just got to come. Come with me. Trust me. You will love it. And, you know, because of um, submission, I went. And um, <laughs> so I'm sitting in this massage chair. I don't know if you're, this massage chair and my feet are in a spa and they're rubbing like hot stones on my calves. And I'm looking at my wife next to him like, oh, my gosh, do they have these in the city? And she's like, yeah, like on every corner. And I'm like, this is, I mean, I was completely, I'm telling all my friends, like, oh my gosh, have you ever done this? And friends were like, yeah, my wife made me go one time too. And I'm sitting there and I'm reading a book on suffering. I'm not joking. I'm like reading it going, how... How is this even going to work? <laughs> so when I talk about suffering, I'm not talking about someone who's like, I know that there's, some, there's different degrees of suffering in this room. There are people that are going through horrific, I have friends of ours, several friends of ours that are going through unimaginable suffering. 
And so I don't come at this topic thinking, oh, I, I, you know, this is all the stuff that I'm learning it too. And so I want to learn it with you. I want to learn how to suffer. And the reason why we have to learn how to suffer is because we live in a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. We live in a society, our modern culture seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Unless it's pain of like not eating carbs to be skinny, we avoid it. Like we hate pain. We will take drugs and take every, like we just hate pain at all costs. We try to avoid it. Now why are we a culture? Why is this culture so intent on eradicating all suffering and all pain at all costs? At all costs. We do not know how to suffer. We hate suffering. We think it's an eruption. We don't want it in our lives at all. We want comfort. We want pleasure. Why? Timothy Keller, a writer and pastor in New York, wrote a book recently on suffering. That was a book I was reading while I was getting a um, thing. And, um, and he says this. He says, most cultures around the world and throughout history, especially major cultures, have always provided answers to the question, what is the purpose of human life? So every culture, especially every, every major culture has a cultural narrative, has provided the answers to this question. What is the purpose of human life? And he writes this. Other cultures have provided its members with various answers to the question, what is the purpose of human life? Some cultures have said it's to live a good life and so eventually escape the cycle of karma and reincarnation and be liberated into eternal bliss. Some have said it's enlightenment, the recognition of the oneness of all things and the attainment of tranquility. Others have said it is a, to, live life, a, to live a life of virtue, of nobility and honor. There are those who teach that the ultimate purpose in life is to go to heaven and to be with your loved ones and with God forever. Listen, the crucial commonality is this. In every one of these worldviews, suffering can, despite its painfulness, be an important means of actually achieving your purpose in life. It can play a pivotal role in propelling you toward all the most important goals. One can say that in each of these other cultures and grand narratives, what human life is all about, suffering can be an important chapter or part of that story. He says in every single culture throughout history, every major culture, the, 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 the purpose of life, suffering was built in as a part of getting us to our ultimate goal. Then he goes on and he says this, but modern Western culture is different. In the secular view, this material world is all there is. And so the meaning of life is to have freedom to choose the life that makes you most happy or the pursuit of happiness. However, in that view of things, suffering can have no meaningful part. It's a complete interruption of your life story. It cannot be a meaningful part of the story. In this approach to life, suffering should be avoided at almost any cost or minimized to the greatest degree possible. So what Keller is saying is that those of us in Western culture have been taught the highest purpose in life. This is what our Western individualistic, very materialistic culture teaches us, that the highest value of human life is individual happiness. What makes you happy? And then whatever makes you happy, let's write laws to protect your view of happiness, your view of comfort, your view of personal freedom. And when we go through suffering in this sort of mindset, suffering is traumatic. We can't handle it. In other cultures, the ultimate meaning in life is not individual happiness. It's things like honor 
and moral virtue and enlightenment and the family name or faithfulness to truth. And when you have those as the meaning of life, these cultural narratives, suffering is the way that the li- your meaning of life is attained. If you have a culture of honor, you have to suffer to get honor. And it's built in. I mean, do you remember that at the beginning of that? It's an old movie, but it's the beginning of the movie um, 300. And that f- the, the opening scene of that movie is like the forging of a young warrior through suffering. Like the dad like throws him out to kill a wolf or something as like 12 years old. And you're going, you're eating your popcorn. And you're like, I could do that. Like I could totally do that. <laughs> like you're watching this and there's just no way you can do that. Like the, the way this young boy would become a man and then represent his family well is through suffering. And so built into their very, the fabric of their, of their worldview was suffering, but not us. It's not built into us. The way we see suffering in any form, if we were completely honest, is a total interruption. And we see it as a complete misfortune. We, whenever suffering happens in our life, we're like, the, we, the first thing we think is, I don't have time for this. I don't have time for this. This is getting in my way of pursuing happiness. This is getting in my way of pursuing joy. I do not have time to suffer. And so, we don't think there's any possible use to suffering. And because there's no use, we just want to eliminate it. Or if we think the problem is our community, we want to eliminate our community by leaving. Or if it's a marriage, we want to eliminate our spouse by divorce. Or if it's our career, we want to eliminate it by resigning. Or if it's a city, we want to move. San Francisco Magazine had a, uh, the front cover of their, of their latest magazine is Live Rich Without Being Rich in San Francisco. Should have sold a lot of copies. And it said this in the article, in the main article, it said SF requires the highest level of sacrifices in the country. To live in any city, San Francisco requires the highest level of sacrifices. And it's fun and fine to live here and a sacrifice to live here when it's fun. But when it stops being fun, we're out and we don't even give it almost like a second thought. Like, no, it's not fun anymore, I'm out. So in our current cultural worldview, the only thing to do with suffering is to avoid it at all costs. Or if it's unavoidable, to manage it, to minimize it, and eliminate the pain and discomfort as soon as possible. But Peter writes. Peter writes to a young, the young Christian world at the time. And he's teaching us a theology and a worldview of suffering that we must master if we are going to live life well, if we are going to live life truly well and faithful to God. Because the purpose of life is not individual freedom. The purpose of life is not individual freedom. It's not autonomy. It's not the the pursuit of happiness. You've been sold a lie. You've been told that since you were a child and it's been a lie. And I think we're starting to feel the cracks of that lie shaping. We we start feeling it in our souls. Remember that that quote I shared last week from uh, the Fleet Foxes? I was raised up believing I was somehow unique, like a snowflake distinct among snowflakes, unique in each way you can see. And now after some time thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery, serving something beyond me. And there's the crack. I was told this, I was told that. My life is about pursuit of happiness and joy and all this stuff in my own individual life. But you know what? I'm starting to see the, the fallacy of that. It's, that argument's breaking down now as I look at the world. I want to serve something beyond me, something beyond me. And so Peter says this, that these sufferings of grief 
and all kinds of trials have come in your life so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And there it is, purpose. Something beyond me. The purpose is the praise and glory and honor of Jesus Christ. We live to the praise and the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ. And Peter's saying, sometimes the road of suffering is the greatest way you attain that. Sometimes the road of suffering is the way we attain that. So how does Peter say suffering works? How does suffering work according to Peter? The suffering that his first readers were experiencing, that it was a suffering from persecution, Peter likens this suffering to fire. We read it in chapter 1 and in chapter 4. Twice he does this. 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 4. He says it's a fire. You're suffering fiery trials of various kinds. You're in this, this, this fire. And Peter wasn't likening the suffering to trial to simply just a fire, a specific kind of fire he was likening it to. He said it's like a, a forge or a furnace or a kiln. It's something that is when, when you put something into a forge or a furnace, it can obliterate that object or can improve that object. It can completely consume that object or make it better. It can turn paper into ash or it can turn sand into glass. It can melt away clay or purify gold. It all depends on the object that is thrust into the fire and the manner in which it is treated. It all depends. So Peter says, these trials have come so that... Peter says there's trials in your life and they have come so that when you, you've taken your life and you've thrusted it into this fire, this kiln, this furnace, that something purifying happens. Something like that's more precious than gold happens to our faith. Peter says this is how suffering works. Now, allow me to say this. Peter gives no um, explanation as to why suffering is a current reality in, a, in some cosmic sense. Okay, we have to get that straight. He doesn't get into the subject of theodicy here, which is the, the argument of trying to reconcile the existence of evil and the existence of God at the same time. He doesn't do that, nor does he say that suffering is foreign. Like suffering, what? Suffering is completely foreign. He didn't say that. He actually says, don't let trials and sufferings surprise you. Sufferings on this earth, in this life, are going to happen. It's the kind of same language that we talked about two weeks ago um, in Psalm 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Though it, it, um, the psalmist David doesn't go, if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but even though I do, I will walk through. You will, I will, we will walk through the valley of the shadow of death and you are with me. Peter's saying these will happen. Don't be surprised when you go through trials. Don't be surprised when you suffer. You will suffer. You will. Suffering and trials are not only a part of life. They are especially part of the Christian life. Peter connects it to Christ. Christ suffered, you'll suffer. Period. Christ suffered, you'll suffer. But then he adds, it's way better as a follower of Christ to suffer for doing good. So this is very important in Peter's world. It's better to suffer for doing good. See, if you suffer for doing evil, almost Peter's something like this. If you suffer for doing evil, that's on you. 
Like you're going to pay the consequence of that. But if you suffer for doing good, you're blessed. Actually, Peter assumes you will suffer as a Christian, and here's why. He says this in verse 17. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now this verse here, people have a lot of problems with that verse. And the reason why they have a problem is that little, little phrase in the middle, if it is God's will. Peter almost makes it sound like it's God's will that we suffer. What kind of, what is, what's that about? What are you saying? You, are, you, are you telling me, you're telling me that it's God's will that I suffer? Like we don't, we don't really have a framework for a God like that who would sadistically want his people to suffer. St. Teresa of Avila said once, if this is the way you treat your friends, it's no wonder you have so few. It's like, is this, is this the God that we're talking about? Like it wants his people to suffer, it's God's will? What is Peter saying here? See, the point is not that God wills suffering. That's not what Peter's saying. But that God wills doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong, even if when this results in suffering. Peter says it's better to do what's right than to do what's wrong, even if you will suffer. It is God's will that you do what's right, even when it brings suffering. God's will for his people, for you and I, is to live faithfully and to do what is right, even if the response of an unbelieving world causes us to suffer. Let me, let me try to sum it up like this. This is one of the themes in, in Peter's letter. It's better to suffer than to sin. It's better to suffer than to sin. It's better to suffer the consequences of, of being faithful to God than to, than, than to sin, to, than to do evil. Um, Karen Jobes, who I've quoted at length during our series, she has one, one of the best commentaries. And then she says this. I'm just going to quote a chunk from her. She says this. Even those Christians who do not suffer persecution for the faith are called to the suffering of self-denial. Sin is often thought of as being motivated by temptation for pleasure, but perhaps the real power of sin lies in its avoidance of pain and suffering. It is better to suffer unfulfilled needs and desires than to sin. Is this not what self-denial means? Jesus links self-denial with following in his footsteps when he said, those who would be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For instance, she writes, isn't the temptation to lie often an attempt to save faith rather than face the consequences of the truth? Isn't the temptation to cheat on an exam and an unwillingness to suffer the loss of reputation or other consequences that failure might bring? Isn't sexual sin often the alternative of suffering by living with deep emotional and physical needs unmet? According to Peter, the pain and the suffering that self-denial brings is a godly suffering that is better than yielding to sin. There is a suffering that happens for the followers of God that you will subject yourself to that will be almost as if it was the will of God because God would rather you suffer than sin. Though this is a theme in Peter's letter, suffering for doing what is right versus doing what is evil, what Peter does is he broadens his scope. He opens it up. And he starts talking about a wider range of suffering and the purpose of suffering. So he, he starts with this persecution, but then he opens up his scope a bit and he goes, this is what the purpose of suffering is. We see suffering, the fire of suffering, like a kiln, like a, like a forge, like a furnace. Suffering can burn you up and completely consume you, but the hope of God is, and the hope of Peter is that the fire of suffering, 
And the trials that you would go through make you more precious. Listen, I'm not trying to be cheesy. This is, this is so key. When you suffer, the hope of God and the hope that Peter's writing in is that these sufferings and these trials would make you more precious. See, gold is a precious metal. When you put it through f- the fire of a furnace, it may soften the metal, it may melt the metal, but the metal, the gold won't just turn to dust. However, gold can be filled with all these impurities that can turn into dust and be destroyed. So gold is mixed with all these impurities. You have the precious gold and all these impurities in the gold, all these other metals in the gold. If you put gold through the fire, the impurities burn off or the impurities rise to the surface so you can see them and you, they're skimmed off by the goldsmith. So there is a sense in which the fire tries to destroy the metal but only succeeds in making it more pure and beautiful. There is a way that the kiln tries and the fire tries to destroy the gold, but only thing it really does, it's tried, but only thing it really, really does is it burns off the impurities and makes the gold more beautiful. Now, Peter picks up on this analogy for the life of faith and for those who have a living hope. And when we have hope in God and faith in God, we have hope in God and faith in God, but every single one of us, we have hope in God and faith in God, but mixed into our hope and faith in God are all sorts of competing commitments to comfort. We love God and we love comfort. We love God and we love power. We love God and we love pride. We love God and we love pleasure. We love God and we love self. And our faith, if I can be completely honest, is largely abstract and in our heads. We know memory verses. We know in our heads that Jesus is the Lord. We know in our heads, and then what happens is it never makes its way down to our heart, our gut, our soul, to where it's, it's a part of our being. It, it seeps out of our pores when we're under stress and trials. It, it's not there yet. It's all in our head. And we've, we've heard Bible studies, and we've heard sermons, and, we heard, and we're intellectual people, and so it lives in our head. And we, and, and we know it intellectually, but we don't know it intimately. So we have blemishes in our character. We're too fragile under criticism or we're too harsh giving criticism. We're ungenerous. We're impulsive. We're cowardly. We're controlling. We're unreliable. We're impatient. We're given so quickly to the lust of our flesh. We have no real strength of character, no real, no real backbone of character. And all of this is mixed in our faith with God. We have faith in God and we're a coward. We have faith in God and we're controlling. We have faith in God and we're unreliable. We have faith in God and we're impatient. And it's all mixed together. And we're blind to these things. We feel powerless when we do see them to do anything about them. And then suffering comes along. And we suffer. And we suffer deeply. We suffer in relationships. We suffer financially. We suffer in trying to have children. We suffer. And then something happens. And that's suffering. And we're thrown into the furnace. But our faith, that faith part of us, is precious to God. More precious than gold. And we're thrown into the furnace through life's circumstances, through the evil in this world, through our own sin and stupidity, through someone else's sin and evil. And then something happens. Keller, again, suffering comes along, he writes. Timidity and cowardice, selfishness and self-pity, tendencies toward bitterness and dishonesty, 
all of these impurities of soul are revealed in suffering and are drawn out by trials and suffering just as a furnace draws out the impurities out of unrefined metal ore. Finally, we see who we really are. Like fire working on gold, suffering can destroy some things within us and can purify and strengthen other things. This is what Peter's talking about. But my favorite part is, Keller says, or not. Or not. It depends on our response. The fiery furnace does not automatically make us better. We are thrown into suffering, and for some of us, suffering destroys us. It consumes us, and we lose everything. How do you respond to suffering? This is what Peter is so intent on getting his, his people, the people that are scattered and are under persecution, like get this right in your heart and in your head when you go through suffering. Get this right. Your response is everything. A furnace can do this. Fiery trials, trials can make you better, can make you more precious. They can, but Peter says, don't give up hope. Put your hope in God. Put your faith in God. Put your, your hope into the living hope. In chapter 4, verse 19, he says, Commit yourselves to our faithful creator and continue to do good. In chapter 3, verse 15, he says, In your hearts, we read it a second ago, revere Christ as Lord. Like you have to respond rightly to these trials. Paul would tell the people in Rome, count it all joy when you suffer trials. Oh, James would say that, but Paul would say the same thing in Romans. Like suffering brings about endurance, and endurance brings about hope, and hope does not disappoint. This is the way that the people of God are to look at suffering. Peter is saying that in the midst of our trials, in the midst of suffering, the fiery furnace, we must depend on God and trust in God. Now, allow me to say something because there might be people in here who are exploring Christianity, or maybe even not, maybe you're a Christian, but you have these problems with suffering. And the problems that you have with suffering are about the injustices. What about injustice? It's not fair And these things can, then all this argument that Peter's making can break down in our minds. Because you you could say something like, wait, you mean to tell me that God allowed my baby to die to throw me into the fiery furnace of hell to teach me patience? I want nothing to do with that kind of God. And that's where this whole argument breaks down. This is injustice. What about the suffering that's not caused by people? What about the suffering that's just in this world? And this is the great argument that has raged on for centuries. Either God is all-powerful and can stop evil, but, but then he can't be all-loving because he doesn't stop all evil. If he's all-powerful, he can, but he must not be all-loving because he doesn't. Or he's all-loving and he wants to stop all evil, But he's not all-powerful because he can't. You can't have both. You can't have an all-powerful and all-loving God. Thus, I don't believe in God. That's how the argument goes. And it's been going on for centuries. Now wait. If you're in here this morning and you don't believe in God because of the problem of evil, then you probably, I would say, I would argue, you have a bigger problem on your hands. If you remove God then you have to remove the right to say what is right or what is wrong and what is evil and what is not. Because without God, there are no absolutes at all. Dr. Martin Luther King in his letter from Birmingham jail said that if there were no higher divine law that defined what justice is, there would be no way to tell if any particular human practice or experience was just or not. 
We need a higher divine law. If you, do, if you leave God out, if all of a sudden, because of the problem of evil, there is no God, you have no right to say that genocide is wrong if there is no God, because why are your morals any better than their morals? Who died and made you God? Under naturalism, killing is how our species got here, the survival of the fittest, kill or be killed. So if you remove God, there is really no hope, and you have no argument at all. So where's the hope? If there is no God, there is no hope at all. But if there is a God, and there is, then how do I get through all this chaos in my life or in this world? Let me switch metaphors from fire to water. Water in the Bible is a picture of chaos. It's a picture of evil. It's a picture of where evil and God clash. Israel was never really a seafaring people. There were people that wandered in the wilderness. And they had a, a book called the Book of Origins, the Book of Genesis. And it starts like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the next sentence is, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And so the Bible, to them, the Scriptures start with an unformed world that's full of darkness and void and water. It's chaos. And the Spirit of God's fluttering over the water and the Spirit of God brings order out of chaos. You trace the storyline of water that stood for evil and chaos and you get Israel against the Red Sea and God parts the sea. You get Israel having to cross the Jordan. God is set over against the chaos, the water, the sea. In Daniel 7, you have this, this picture of these demonic beasts and they're the embodiment of evil and they come out of the great sea it says water is a picture of chaos and so throughout the psalms you have and throughout scripture you have not just the chaos of water but the chaos of storms and when we're in storms and when we're being flooded and we feel like our lives are going to unend i'm like in a storm we say and the psalmist uses language over and over and over again then you go to the life of Jesus and in the book of Mark you get the story in Mark chapter 4 where the disciples were told by Jesus to get into a boat and to go on the other side of the sea of Galilee in the middle of the night and the reason why they're going to the other side of the sea is because they're going to go and cast out demons from a, from a man who has a legion of them and so it's like they're crossing over into enemy territory and they're crossing over over the chaos of water and in the middle of the night Jesus falls asleep it's a cosmic story Mark's telling it in a cosmic way. The evil of the sea, the demonic storm trying to destroy the disciples, and the storm kicks up. It's a hurricane, a squall. And they're about to die. Disciples look to find Jesus sleeping in the boat, which I think is like a miracle in itself that you could sleep in a boat during a storm. But no one mentions that in the miracles of Jesus, but I'm going to start doing that. <laughs> and it says this in Mark chapter 4. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. Miracle. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Don't you care that we're going under? Don't you care that this evil, chaotic storm is going to take us down? Don't you care? And he got up. He rebuked the wind and the waves. He said, quiet, be still. Or basically, be calm, stay calm. That's literally how it reads in the Greek. Be calm, stay calm. And the crazy thing is that the wind and the waves listened to him. The wind and the waves were like, okay, 
all right? And then just calm. Then the wind died down. It was completely calm. Um, in, in Greek, this is a mega storm, mega calm. It's so cool. Like there was a mega storm and then there was this mega calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified. See, they were afraid of the storm, but they were terrified of Jesus now. And they asked each other, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? There's a lot of lessons from this story. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. But I just want to point out one for right now. I want you to look at what they say to Jesus. They say to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? I think everyone feels the weight of the sentence when we're in the midst of a fire, in the midst of a storm, in the midst of trials and suffering in our lives. We have all this evil and all this chaos swirling around us at all times. Don't, God, don't you care? What did the, and I've thought about this often. What did the disciples lose faith in? I don't think they lost faith in Jesus because they woke Jesus up. They lost faith in Jesus. They're like, let him sleep. We don't believe in him anyway. They believed in him still. They didn't lose faith in Jesus. They lost faith in his love for them. They lost faith in his concern for them. They lost faith in his care for them. They said, don't you care if we drown? They lost faith in that. And that strikes at the core of every follower of Jesus because there's not one of us in here who hasn't felt like that. Going through a trial, going through the storm, don't you care? We still believe in Jesus, that he could do something. He's all-powerful. In our situations, that's actually what makes us probably the most angry and most unsettled because we know that Jesus could do something. He could find us a spouse, or he could secure us in that career, or he could control what, the, what, what our city does with its market and, and rent around here. He could completely remove temptation. He could give us children. He could keep our kids alive. We know that he can, but he doesn't, and we lose faith. And when we believe that the chaos of life is more powerful than the love of Jesus, we lose faith in God's love for us. And we ask God, don't you care? One commentator says, this question, it was the cruelest question they could have asked. Because the very reason he was in the boat, indeed in the world, and the reason he was going to die on the cross for them was precisely because he cared for them. The very fact that Jesus was in their boat and not in heaven with the Father, the very fact that he draped himself in humanity and was in the boat and subjected himself to the pains of humanity, to hunger and pain, all of the stuff that we experience, the very fact that he was in the midst of the storm with them showed them that he cared. He could have said, what do you mean? Do you not, do you care? I'm here, aren't I? I'm in, and that's actually the biggest lesson of this. In the midst of your storm, God is with you. In the midst of the fiery furnace, if you've ever read the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go into the fire, and there's a fourth person in there. He looks like the son of God. Like God's with them in the fire. The, the, the God being with us. See, Mark's, Mark's writing is, is thick with irony. The irony of asking Jesus if he cared. The irony of calling Jesus teacher. Teacher, don't you care? But he wasn't a teacher. He was the Lord. And he told the wind and the wave to shut up, and the wind and the wave listened. The irony of being afraid of, of life's storms when Jesus was in their boat, it's thick with irony. See, the hope of God in the midst of suffering through fire or storms is this. 
Because the, the, the Bible doesn't give us pragmatic, this is why evil happens. Just, it's not there. And I don't even think if we knew, we would even, be, first of all, be able to comprehend it any more than like a, like a three-year-old is able to comprehend why you would tell them to do something, like a 30-year-old would tell them to do something, a 30-year-old parent would. Like, the kid just can't comprehend it. Like, how much higher is God? Like, we just probably wouldn't comprehend it. I know we live in the age of enlightenment, and we're smart, and we could attain everything, and we understand everything, but you're not God. There are no answers there. This is the only answer that we get throughout the scriptures, is that God is with you, that he is with you. Isaiah says this, Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You are precious. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. God is what we, the promise that we get through sufferings, the promise that we get through trials, even though we might not feel it, is that God is with us. Oh, and let me tie off that water thing. At the end of the scriptures, we get a picture of the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation chapter 21. And in Revelation chapter 21, it says, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Like, what a random thing to say. Like, of all the things he used to describe the new heavens and the earth, he's like, there's no sea. Why was there no sea? Why, as he goes on, does God wipe away every tear from our eye and he's with us? He will dwell with us and he will be, we will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. The witness of God is there, like tangibly, palpably there, forever. And then John says, oh, there was no more sea. Why? Because sea is chaos, evil. And God, there will be ocean and surfing in heaven, I promise you. <laughs> but there's no more chaos. There's no more storms. There's no more evil. God will wipe all of that away and every tear from our eye. See, for that reality, for that to be a reality, Peter gives the best one-sentence description of the gospel that I believe is found in the Bible. And it's given to us in the middle of him writing about suffering. And he says this, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. A lot of people say that the gospel is many things. The gospel is you're free of guilt, free of sin, free of this, free of that, liberated to do this. But the best way I can describe what the gospel of Jesus Christ is that you get to be with God, with God. That is the hope of anyone going through trials anyone going through the furnace, anyone going through the storm, that God is with you. And for us to be brought to God, Christ had to suffer for our sins, the things that have separated us from God. And we place our trust in him. We cast our anxiety upon him, Peter will say in the next chapter, because he cares for us. That's the gospel. God, I thank you for your the scriptures, your word, your truth, God, these are, these are true words. I pray that we as a congregation would accept them as truths right now. 
That we be moved to respond rightly to suffering. I pray, God, that you would, in our, in our lives, in, in around us, in our community right now, we would just assume suffering. For us, living the Christian life, it will mean a level of suffering. It will mean a level of trial. I pray for this church, Lord. I, I, I pray now, I intercede for them, that the suffering that we go through together, the suffering that we go through, would make our faith precious. That would remove the impurities of selfishness, of cowardice. That would remove the impurities of the lust of pleasure, that you would temper us and train us in godliness, God. The suffering that you bring us through would teach us to abide in Christ. And that, God, we would get through because we know that you are with us, that you bore our very wounds, that you are a God who is with us and who knows, who knows our plight, who knows our pain. You went through every single temptation that there is you know us intimately. And so we can turn to you as a God who knows and a God who cares. Thank you for your love for us. In Christ's name, amen.